message, a sentimental message. Like I said earlier on, that comes next week, and then this week, uh, the message will probably, for many of you, be the exact opposite of what you're expecting. As we continue on in our look at Matthew, uh, if you'd open up your copy of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning to Matthew chapter 23. Not going to get you to stand this morning because we're just going to be looking at one phrase. And we'll be jumping around and touching on a number of subjects as we explore this one phrase that we'll unpack a little bit more in the future after next week's Christmas message. If you look at chapter 23, verse 13, you'll see immediately what I mean. As Jesus turns his face toward the scribes and said to them, in verse 13, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. As we come to this series of seven woes in Matthew chapter 23, we encounter some of, if not the harshest, most direct, most penetrating, and perhaps most offensive words that Jesus spoke throughout his entire earthly ministry. These words are so clear, so jarring, and so severe that they ought to send shockwaves among those who complain and moan about the tone with which people speak the truth more than they do the truth actually spoken. See, up to this point in Matthew, Jesus has already spoken with complete crystal clarity to this same group of people. He spoke scathingly to them back in Matthew chapter 15, verse 12, or Matthew 15, so clearly that the disciples came up to him after he had spoken to them and said to him, do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when you said these things? To which Jesus responded, they're blind guides. Leave them alone, they're blind guides, <clears throat> meaning Jesus doubled down. And the situation <clears throat> into which Christ levels these seven denunciations, the when and the where ought to challenge our own assumptions about the propriety of publicly exposing and discrediting enemies of the kingdom of heaven. So as sort of a preamble and precursor to the series of woes, we're going to just explore this phrase that opens up and is repeated throughout the series of woes. First, the first question I want to ask and answer is, <clears throat> what exactly is it that Jesus said? You see, five times in the next 20 or so verses, you will hear and see Jesus say, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Drop your eye down to verse 13, verse 23, verse 25, verse 27, verse 29. And he'll mix it up a little bit with a, with a woe to you, blind guides, in verse 16. Or you blind fools, in verse 17. Or you blind men, in verse 18. Now we're going to explore the reasons for all of these in future messages. We'll explore the particularities of each woe, but ultimately the overarching declaration and pronunciation is, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. That's the engine that drives the woes, the set of woes. Now this word for woe, it's not a nice word. It's not a sweet, soft, and flowery word. No, this is a word of intense anger and intense condemnation. And the tone of the statement matches the word choice. 
The tone with which Jesus speaks is one of horror and anger and condemnation towards these scribes and Pharisees, wrapped in and dripping with also lamentation. And as Jesus selects this word and communicates it to the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus is taking upon himself the role and speaking in like manner to the Old Testament prophets who before him announced the times of divine judgment, divine wrath, and divine doom that would soon fall upon the city of Jerusalem from the Lord's own hand. Woe to you is an oracle. It is a forecasting of the doom that is soon to descend upon and overcome those to whom it is pronounced. Jesus spoke in the prophetic tradition of men like Isaiah, through whom the Lord foretold judgment upon Israel and Jerusalem some eight centuries earlier, a judgment that would come in the form of conquer and capture at the hands of the Babylonians. And their exile from Jerusalem and their scattering throughout the known world. See, the Lord spoke through Isaiah saying this in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 to 21. Isaiah 5, 20 to 21 saying, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. And it's not just Isaiah, but Habakkuk as well, through whom the Lord again pronounced woes upon his stiff-necked and disobedient people, saying in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 9, Woe to him who gets evil gain from his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. And again in chapter 2, verse 12, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. And again, in Habakkuk 2, 19 and 20, Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, meaning an idol, Awake to a silent stone. Arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is not breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So the answer to the first question, what did Jesus say, is this. He said, woe to you, which is a rather harsh and direct condemnation, which is a foretelling of doom and judgment to come against those toward whom it is directed. That's the what. Which leads to the second question, to whom did Jesus speak this word? To whom is this pronouncement, pronouncement of woe directed? Look again at verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! <clears throat> Jesus directed this series of condemnations. He directed this series of denunciations at the scribes and the Pharisees. <clears throat> Our Lord saved His and pointed his most intense anger, his most fiery indignation against those public figures whose teaching and example, instead of leading people in the direction of the kingdom of heaven, in the paths of righteousness, in paths of wholehearted obedience to and worship of our great and perfect, glorious God of Israel, who instead led the people in paths of unrighteousness and disobedience to the Lord's will and command. The Lord's most, our Lord's most furious criticisms were aimed at those who situated themselves among God's people as guides and as instructors and as teachers who set themselves up as examples for the flock to follow but who instead of being those who could say, imitate me as I imitate Jesus, actually set those who follow their lead on the path of rebellion rather than obedience. Who set those who follow them on the wide road that leads to destruction 
And so when Jesus speaks this series of woes, these condemnations and denunciations, these words of doom and judgment against the scribes and the Pharisees, he speaks them against those leading his people astray in a public way by their disobedient, their defiant, and their hypocritical example. There are such for whom these indignant words of woe are not only right, but called for from those who stand upon the Word of God and would seek to protect God's people. This leads to a third question. Where and when did he say or pronounce or proclaim these words of woe upon the scribes and the Pharisees? I know it's been a while, but we are still considering an exchange that started back in Matthew chapter 21, verse 23. There we read that when Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching the crowds. You see that, right? This, it, this exchange started then. When Jesus entered the temple and the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching the crowds. Jesus had, up to this point in the exchange, spoken a series of parables that the chief priests and the Pharisees and the elders understood were directed against them. And even though they wanted to arrest Jesus, they didn't. Why? Look at verse 46 of chapter 21. They feared the crowds, meaning the crowds still surrounded Jesus at this moment as he taught in the temple. Chapter 23, verse 1 makes that clear. It says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples, meaning that at the time when Jesus speaks this series of woes, there are numerous people surrounding him and listening in as he speaks them. This series of clear, direct judgments and condemnations against the scribes and the Pharisees were, in fact, uttered by Jesus in the temple during the Passover week when both the temple and the city of Jerusalem were at their busiest, swarming and bustling with people visiting to offer their sacrifices in obedience to the command of God. They were made as this multitude, as this assembled flock, as this, this crowd eagerly listened to and hung on his every word. Meaning that these statements of harsh woe were made in the most public of forums. This full frontal, all-out assault on these phony, self-serving, hypocritical religious leaders, these scribes and Pharisees, took place in the presence of a large watching and listening crowd. A crowd who was being impacted and led away by these very scribes and Pharisees. Which means, which means, there is a time and there is a place to publicly rebuke, chastise, condemn, and reprove those public figures who set themselves up as examples to the people of God, but who lead the people astray by their hypocritical, unrighteous, disobedient blueprint. There is a time for those who stand upon the Word of God to boldly speak up in prophetic style when masses of people are being led by these public figures on the road that leads to eternal destruction. When highly influential figures who profess to instruct and to teach and to speak for the Lord lead untold numbers of souls single file into rebellion against God and the clear witness of His Word. For Christ in his day, this meant publicly condemning the scribes and the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. For their, look at verse 13 again, for their shutting the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, neither entering themselves or allowing others who would enter to go in. Now, 
these words will ruffle feathers, right? Because in our culture, we have been conditioned to despise the voices who speak in prophetic tones, who call for repentance from wayward public figures who profess to be Christian but instead lead people in rebellion against the Lord. We respond with revulsion to such prophetic voices who call out in the wilderness like John the Baptist, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand! When we hear such exclamations, maybe not us in general, but the wider Christian world at this moment, when we hear such exclamations spoken in the same tone, tones of horror, indignation, appeal, lament, how many get lost in the weeds of tone? chastising the person for the way they said, woe to you, rather than hearing and thanking God for the, courage of, to raise, for the courage of such a one who speaks while everybody else remains silent. I want you to imagine for a second how much of the professing Christian world might react in our own day to hearing some faithful Christian leader standing on the word of God publicly denounce some popular professing Christian leader whose instruction and example is itself defiant, disobedient, and leading untold thousands astray. If they spoke in the same tone as the Old Testament prophets, as the New Testament apostles, as our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we respond when we hear the voice of the faithful crying out for the sake of the sheep against those who shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces? by their rebellious example, and they do so in the public eye while being adored by millions around the world as they do so. See, the scribes and the Pharisees had a tremendous reach and an outsized influence among the nation of Israel. At their peak, they probably only numbered a a couple of thousand. In a nation of a million, you had a couple of thousand Pharisees whose influence among the people stretched far and wide. But that is nothing compared to our own day, isn't it? The speed with which just a single hypocrite, a single heretic, a single rebel against the Lord professing to speak and represent Jesus, the speed with which they can build up a reputation, build up a following, build up a base from which to disseminate their unrighteousness is staggering given the power of the internet and our up to the second flow of information. How do you think an Old Testament prophet or a New Testament apostle, or our Lord himself might speak to the blind guides and the hypocrites who today set themselves up as leaders among God's flock and wield a gigantic amount of influence over his people and use that influence to either knowingly or unknowingly turn people away from obedience to the Lord and the knowledge of his word and lead people into confusion, lead the saints into confusion. Think about the way we've become about holding truth with conviction. Think about how easy it is for us to defer and to say things like, well, that's just your interpretation. Which either weakens our own faith because then we don't have any confidence in God's word or it allows us to look through the catalog of interpretations until we find the one that most suits us. This is just sowing of confusion. God's word means something. God's word has a fixed meaning. We can know what God's word means. We can proclaim it. We can correct error as a result. Remember, back when Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, you remember, right? You have heard that it was said, and here you, Jesus brings up some faulty interpretation of his word, and he says in response, but I say to you, and how is it that he can say, but I say to you, this is what it means? It's because he knows the word of God has a meaning that we can stand upon. It has a fixed meaning. We can know what God means in His Word. We can know what God says in His Word. The reason things get confused is because so many people rise up and start confusing the issues. I don't think any of them, prophets, apostles, or our Lord, would mince any words, but would instead clearly and publicly condemn 
such false and hypocritical teachers for their effect on the people who are harassed and confused like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus followed the examples of the prophets who came before him. I want I mean, I, I, let's just take a couple of examples here. Listen to the denunciations that the Lord himself leveled to disobedient leaders in the nation of Israel who led the people into wickedness. Let's just look at Jeremiah by himself. I want you to listen to this, and I want you to think about how well words like this would go over in our day, okay? Jeremiah chapter 3. Verses 1 to 3. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers. And you would return to me, declares the Lord. Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see, where have you not been ravished? By the waysides you have sat awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Therefore the showers have been withheld and the spring rain has not come, yet you have the forehead of a whore. You refused to be ashamed. Can I just say... Ouch! Can you imagine? And if you think things got sweeter and softer in the New Testament, it didn't. You remember on the day of Pentecost as Peter speaking to the thousands of people that were set before him, publicly outed the crowds and the people in the crowds who crucified and killed the Lord Jesus of Nazareth by the hands of lawless men in Acts chapter 2, 2.23. You killed and crucified Jesus of Nazareth. And if you read the letters of the apostles, you see much the same tone. When, for example, the entire church of, at Corinth is chastised by the apostle Paul in his letter. For the report of quarreling among them brought to him by Chloe's people. And more, there was a man in the church who was committing sexual immorality and he was publicly called out in that letter, shamed for his wickedness, and the church was rebuked for their lack of movement in disciplining that man and ordered to cast the man out should the church refuse to repent. Now, Understand the scenario. When this letter is written and this letter is sent to the church at Corinth, when they receive the letter, the, the, um, the tradition or the, what they would do is they'd read that letter out loud to the entire congregation as it was gathered. I want you to imagine that for a second. A letter, imagine all of the different saints sitting there as this letter is taken by the pastor of the church and read to them. And every single person who knows exactly who's being spoken about with every single thing. You can imagine, right, when Paul gets to 1 Corinthians 5 and it's like, that man who has his father's wife. And you can imagine everybody in the church like, you know, peering over because they know who he's talking about. Or the people who are quarreling with each other. Everybody, they know who he's talking about, and they're all being publicly outed and publicly shamed for their sin. There are numerous examples of sin gone public in Scripture and numerous examples of public chastisements for such sins. But should something like this occur in our day, how would we receive it? The man spoken of and rebuked publicly in 1 Corinthians 5 is a wonderful testimony to all of us about how we ought to receive it because he responded to the harsh and public discipline by repenting and eventually being restored to the church. This is who is spoken of in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, when Paul said, Now if anyone has caused pain, he's not caused it to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Amen. 
The words, the clear words of Scripture were for this man in the end the soothing balm of sweet communion with the Lord. And it's not only the prophets and the apostles and Jesus who engaged in such public denunciations of those who would lead God's people astray by those who should know better, but this happens all throughout church history. We read of men in church history, right? Like Martin Luther, the great German monk who stood alone against the Roman Catholic Assembly, who for centuries had led an entire continent astray. And when he was commanded by these same men to recant and repudiate his writings, he said this, and I quote, Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything. And the response was met with much mockery and with much scorn by so many. But listen, in the end, Luther was right. The same goes for Luther's contemporary, John Calvin, who, being tasked with overseeing the spiritual life and health of Geneva in Switzerland, pressed for the Lord's Supper to be withheld from those who lived immoral, disobedient, rebellious lives all week, but then who thought they could come to the Lord's table, take communion, and kind of win God's affection and favor. It's kind of a, an, a, a painting over all of the sins that they had committed that week. Now, the people of Geneva did not like this. They thought it was too harsh. And so you know what they did? They booted Calvin out of the city. And he was gone for three years. And the state of the city turned increasingly immoral to the degree that they begged Calvin to come back. And those who hoped that Calvin softened his stance were quickly robbed of that illusion when at Calvin, in Calvin's first sermon, he picked up at the very text that he was preaching when he was booted out of the city three years earlier. It's a way of saying, nothing has changed. And while many turned against him, in the end, Calvin was right. Same is true for the Puritan pastors and preachers in 17th century England when the governing bodies, the governing powers in the country passed what's called the Act of Uniformity. In 1662, the government required all pastors throughout the nation to, to submit to and declare their unfeigned, quote, unfeigned assent and consent, unquote, to everything in the Book of Common Prayer by a certain date. This Book of Common Prayer was the uh, governing book for the Anglican Church. To assent to this demand meant that these pastors in this day would have settled for numerous errors in doctrine, numerous errors in practice, and the hindrance of the actual proclamation of the gospel to the people. And these faithful pastors refused and they were promptly ejected from their pulpits, over 2,000 of them. And these men were criticized and they were mocked by oh so many for their rigid, scripturally oriented convictions. And I suggest to you that even up to this day, this is 400, almost 400 years ago, and England still has not recovered from this event. You know what? They were right. And again, one more. The great prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, in the final years of his life and ministry, found himself embroiled in what we now call the downgrade controversy. As a number of leaders in the Baptist Union in which Spurgeon was a member, as numbers of pastors succumbed to, and in some cases actually openly promoted such basic and devastating errors to the churches in that union, errors like denying the authority and inerrancy and infallibility of God's word, denying the substitutionary atonement of our Lord Jesus Christ, meaning they denied the fact that he is God come to us in the flesh, who came to bear in and upon himself the wrath of the Father, the penalty for our sin, the, sin that, the penalty that ought to be poured out for us, the sinners who actually committed the deeds, he bore them in himself, and he did this in our place as our substitute. Many of these Baptist Union preachers were denying this cardinal central doctrine. 
Many in the Baptist Union also openly denied the existence of and the eternal nature of hell and lived in and taught this terrible universalist heresy. The idea that every single person who has ever lived will at some point in the future find themselves in heaven whether they turn to Christ in this life or not. And so as Spurgeon noted the downgrade of the church in their denial of such cardinal doctrines, their denial of such biblical truths. He said that to deny these things is to deny the Christian faith itself. And he stood against the liberal drift. He stood against the downgrade of the denomination. And he said this, quote, We cannot hold the inspiration of the word and yet reject it. We cannot believe in the atonement and yet deny it. We cannot recognize the punishment of the impenitent and yet indulge in some larger hope. One way or the other we must go. Decision is the virtue of the hour. These weren't little trifling matters. These were large issues by which numerous shepherds, numerous public figures led numerous people astray. And for his efforts, Spurgeon was roundly criticized for his conviction. Magazines wrote scathing articles mocking him, and many pastors directly rebuked him for his biblical faithfulness. But you know what? Spurgeon was right. And in our own day, we have faithful, numerous faithful men standing upon the Word of God, speaking biblical truth forthrightly with a clear boldness, who like those before them, have found themselves embroiled in some controversy or other, who find themselves mocked by the Christian establishment even though they are right. Such men as John Piper and John MacArthur and Alistair Begg and Steve Lawson and others. All of these men have fought at different times with different methods for biblical faithfulness in our day. And as any good pastor does, they seek to protect and to shepherd God's people through the various efforts of the enemy and his agents to infiltrate and lead God's people astray. There have been times when each of these men and and many other faithful men have been publicly rebuked because they rebuked a public Christian figure who was leading people, many people, in error. And the response to their efforts ranges from things like, they didn't sound very nice when they said it, which is interesting given the entire tenor of Scripture when it comes to public figures leading people away astray. Or, if you had a problem with that person, you should have gone to that person privately first which is also an interesting take given what we've learned from our text this morning, that Jesus rebuked public figures who led public, the public away from obedience to God's word both openly and publicly. The idea of going to your brother in private in Math, is a text in Matthew 18 that speaks to our interpersonal dealings as faithful men and women seeking and striving to love one another and to forgive one another and to move forward in unity with one another because we all have the same basic foundation, our love for our desire to serve Jesus Christ. It's not about those who set themselves up as public examples of godliness, but who lead a host of people into defiance against that God they claim to serve. And I would suggest that we all know this, right? We all know that there are some public Christian figures who deserve and command this strong, open, public denunciation for the ways in which they deceive and confuse and disobey and distort the Word of God by their words, by their teachings, by their actions. For the ways in which their public example and platform leads many in, way, in the paths of unrighteousness. I mean, you've got hyper-charismatic groups who, who their leaders kick pregnant women in the belly and tell their congregants to eat grass and drink gas. They deserve to be publicly denounced, condemned, and rebuked. We've got those in the church who have a big platform and 
publicly promote the acceptance of and the celebration of sexual sin and perversion in the church by God's people. They deserve to be publicly denounced and woes pronounced in their direction. We've got those who rob widows and others of their finances to pay for the gas in their private jets. Those ought to be publicly denounced. I think we all know this, right? And there are those who lead others in rebellion and disobedience to the Word of God. And the saddest part of it all is that many of the great threats to the Christian faith and to doctrinal purity and to a vibrant, obedient spiritual life of worship to God, as sad as this might sound, they don't come from the outside. They arise from within. The Apostle Paul made that clear, right? When he warned the Ephesian elders, a warning that still rings true even today. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, he said in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 31. In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Did you see it? Did you hear it? From your own selves will come those who either knowingly or unknowingly draw disciples away from the truth. These are children of the enemy, fierce wolves, who will come into the church, present themselves as leaders, but will paint the ways and the values and the opinions and the expectations and the sins of the world with pretty colors. They will arise from within our own selves to draw people away from biblical faithfulness, away from the Christ that they speak and teach about and call for twisted things to become the accepted norm among God's people, among God's church. The great threat comes from those who claim to speak for, to follow, to represent Christ to His people, but who are actually false, liars, selfish, disobedient, and worldly such as these will labor from within to redirect people from the path of true righteousness and obedience to greater alignment with cultural behaviors, current behaviors, and principles of the unsaved world. And let me just say this, the world does not define our faith. The opinions of the world hold no sway upon the truth of God's Word. God's Word is the authority. We submit to Him and His Word. Whatever the world is doing out there, whatever the world demands from us, we do not give in an inch. We don't care. What God's Word tells us to do, it's that that we do. What God's Word tells us to believe, it's that which we believe. It's that which we cling to. And what makes it worse is as this takes place, I sometimes ask myself, well, who's going to speak up? How many are simply going to go along with it because they're afraid to speak up? How many would want to sound the alarm on public figures like this? How many would want to call for obedience and repentance? Because why would you when you'll just be jumped on by those who profess to be Christians around you? How many are unwilling to sound the alarm for some reason or another? Now, I just want to this is just an aside here. This prophetic type task can itself, if we are not careful, become the domain of sinful, proud, arrogant men who salivate at every opportunity to platform themselves and to situate themselves as bold and courageous voices for truth on every conceivable issue and subject. So let me just say this. If that's you, keep your mouth closed. This is not your task. This heavy and weighty task is not something that the prophets who engage in it enter into joyfully. It's not some 
task that they get fleshly satisfaction from. Because if you read the prophets in the Old Testament and you see the men who took this task on, you see men like Elijah, not flesh, indulging in his flesh, but you see Elijah weeping alone in a cave. You see men like Jeremiah weeping over the destruction of Judah and penning the tear-stained words of perhaps the most emotionally distressed book in the Old Testament, The Lamentations. You see Habakkuk who couldn't fathom and was pained down to the very core of his being by the words that he was called to declare to his wayward countrymen. Such a task as crying out for, in the wilderness for repentance, such a task as calling out woe to those leading people in sin is not something that we enter into lightly or for the satisfaction of our own flesh. The consequences for those who take up this mantle can be, and oftentimes are, very heavy and very grave. You can read of prophets like Micaiah who were punched by false prophets and imprisoned by the king. And you can read of Zechariah, who we'll see later in the series of woes, who was, in chapter 23, verse 35, who Jesus said was murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. You can see the faithful men in history. So to go back to the downgrade controversy and Charles Spurgeon, as he fought in this controversy, Spurgeon's health deteriorated quite quickly and not soon after he died. And his wife, Susanna, writing after his death, said this, that Charles's quote, fight for the faith cost him his life, end quote. And even Jesus, as he declares these seven condemnations, as harsh as they are, closes the section with a passionate lament over the city of Jerusalem. Luke tells us, that as Jesus, in chapter 19, verse 41, as Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. And as you look at the final bit of Matthew chapter 23, you will see Jesus passionately, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. So on the one hand, finding some sort of fleshly satisfaction in denouncing and condemning others actually disqualifies you from the role. But that does not mean, for the rest of us, that we should never confront or speak out against unrighteousness and disobedience of those who profess the name of Jesus and whose example leads people into wandering away from the fold. And when we do, let us be very careful. We don't jump on every single little thing. That just proves you to be ornery and looking for a fight. There must be a legitimate reason. But I don't think that's the problem we find ourselves facing. I think far too often believers simply remain silent. Or we cling to sentimental attachments that we once had toward a teacher who may have at one point been orthodox but has since moved in the direction of rebellion. There will be an example coming. Who lead many in their train... And why is that? Why do we choose silence? Are we afraid of ourselves being mocked? Are we afraid to sound convictional and clear with regards to God's word because when you do that, people say you're arrogant and proud? Do we know our faith well enough to defend it and to speak up against those who are in rebellion and defiance to it? And see what happens, right, as we remain silent. As we refuse to speak against the scribes and the Pharisees who shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. See how few our day can defend, describe the Christian faith and its basic core doctrines and essentials. See how many professing Christians will not share the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, because they don't know enough to speak it themselves, nor do they, are they sure that they'll have the answers when people ask them questions about it. See how little discernment exists among professing believers because we consume such a steady diet of pop culture, inch-deep, mile-wide Christian pop culture. 
A culture that's led by the very people, by the way, that we should be warning each other against. See how little mental engagement and how little time and effort we put into knowing and meditating, I mean truly meditating on our faith. See how many Christian, Christians take their cues from the talking heads who claim to be Christians, but instead twist and warp God's word. See how many would rather cling to their own personal convictions about how they think things ought to be rather than accepting, believing, obeying, and exalting God and ever, for everything His Word declares to be true and complying and submitting our lives to the, those truths. See how many people love and cling to their false teachers, love and cling to their fa- favorite public figures, defending them and wondering why preachers and teachers need to be so particular and so precise and so meticulous with their doctrines. We do that because our God is precise. Go back and read Exodus. Read about God's design of all of the different utensils and parts and pieces in the tabernacle. And you tell me whether God is a precise God or not. God even ensured that the recipe for the incense was meticulously and exactly set out in the scripture because you cannot use anything other than that exact recipe. Does that sound precise? We serve a precise God. See how many have little to no issue with being informed and taught by those who, like the scribes and Pharisees, create, look at verse 15, 23, 15, create children of hell worse than themselves. It is to crowds and to leaders much like us in our own day that these condemnations to the public figures also in his own day serve as clear warnings to us. And if you'd like to be brought a little closer maybe to the mood of the Pharisees upon hearing so direct and bold a series of public denunciations, let me give you an example. Now, I could have chosen any number of examples. The only reason I chose this one is because it's the most recent in my mind. That is it. Okay? So forgive me. But many of the responses that I heard, it happened a couple of years ago, many of the responses were really quite shocking to me. Now, if you've attended WGC for any length of time, you probably have heard me say that there are, in my estimation, at least four pillars that any good pastor seeking to be vigilant in protecting the flock for the sake of the church ought to be unyielding, inflexible, and extra clear about. Now, I'd probably add a few more, but we'll stick to the four for this morning. Because these four issues have, for the last few decades, been the Trojan horses the foot in the door, the nose of the camel that pokes through the tent. And you know once the nose of the camel pokes through the tent door, good luck keeping the entire camel out of the house, out of the tent. And the four pillars are this. One, the inerrancy, infallibility, authority, and sufficiency of God's word. Pastors ought to be clear on this. Two, the substitutionary atonement of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is an inflexible battle that pastors should be fighting. Three, the literal interpretation of Genesis 1 to 11. These chapters are the historical record of God's creation of the universe. And we do not for a moment, your pastor does not for a moment choose to believe those whose entire goal is to suppress what can be known about God who exchanged the glory of God, who claim to be wise but are actually fools, who are futile in their thinking and darkened in their hearts, as Romans 1 declares, over what God's word actually says. And number four, and the fourth one forms the backdrop for the example we're going to explore, is the role of women in the church. The nature of scripture, the nature of the atonement, Biblical interpretation of Genesis 1 to 11, the role of women in the church. These are the four pillars that are consistently chipped away at in order to change the direction of a church. So a few years back, at a conference at, the, at Grace Community Church called the Truth Matters Conference, Todd Friel, the host of an excellent 
radio program called Wretched Radio. I highly recommend it to anyone who's looking for godly resources, Wretched Radio. Sat down with Pastor John MacArthur and asked him to participate in one of their routine exercises, a word association segment, where Friel says a phrase, and then MacArthur gives a one or two word short answer response. The reason they do this is because, as you all know, it's next to impossible for a pastor to say anything in two words. That's why they do it. A few years earlier, Friel had said, Stephen Furtick, to which MacArthur replied, unqualified, which sent the blogosphere into a tizzy, but it is absolutely correct. If you have any association with that elevation Stephen Furtick thing, cut it all now because that man is unqualified to be in the role that he is in. This time, however, Friel asked MacArthur for a short response to the name Beth Moore. And I remember watching this for the first time and hoping for a clear, concise dose of public truth. Because in saying the name Beth Moore, Friel was actually not necessarily speaking directly about Beth Moore, but he was asking MacArthur to weigh in on the larger battle that is, was being waged, that is being waged within evangelicalism the role of women in the church. Because Moore has had and has become increasingly defiant and rebellious in regards to this particular subject. Here is one of the many popular women who set themselves up as a teacher, leader, and example for God's people, taking it upon themselves to shift from their original uh, labors, which were good, the labor of teaching women the truth of God, to violating the Word of God by preaching to local congregations of assembled Christians, whether men or women or some mixture of both. And she took it upon herself to instruct men and women in the Word of God from pulpits and stages all over America and all over the world and taught other women to do the same. A clear, direct contradiction of biblical truth and went about defending her right to do so. Here is a woman whose books and Bible studies populate the shelves of church libraries everywhere. Here is one of the most public and popular figures in the entire Christian world. A woman so many look to and imitate, and here she is, openly defying God's command. And what's worse is that nobody around her, nobody close to her, seems to have had the courage to take her aside and rebuke her for it or to challenge her about it. And so when this name came up in this exchange between MacArthur and Friel, MacArthur wasn't simply being asked about Beth Moore alone, but he was being asked to speak to this entire issue of women seeking to preach and exercise authority over men in the church. He was asked to weigh in on what could be considered a downgrade controversy being waged in the church today. And his forthright and clear response, a response that proceeds from his characteristically biblical mindset was this, go home, which was then immediately followed up with, there is no case that can be made biblically for a woman preacher, period, paragraph, end of discussion. End quote. I knew he wouldn't be able to do it in two words. None of us can. And this rather tame response elicited enormous backlash from so many in the church, from many other popular professing Christian leaders who came out and publicly supported more, even inviting her to preach in their churches on Sunday mornings, while others tweeted their encouragement for her to keep on doing it all across the world. And at the same time, as everybody was supporting her and her disobedience, the other side, they were also raking MacArthur over the words, over the coals for his words, which, by the way, any Bible-reading Christian will recognize as scripturally accurate and true. One of the bold prophetic voices of our day spoke up in defense of an important biblical truth, and yet, as it's always been, people wrote articles podcasts, YouTube videos, tweets, 
and Facebook posts maligning the one standing on and proclaiming the word of God truthfully. And you and I ought to know the word of God is always clear to those with eyes to see and ears to hear. Women, the Lord has in his goodwill and wisdom and purpose withheld from you authority over men in the church. As the Apostle Paul makes clear in 1 Timothy 2, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And yet, in the face of such a clear word, many women in flagrant violation of the Scriptures somehow set aside these words as they submit to and follow the world's ways over the biblical command. And they not only seek authority over men in the church, but are oftentimes encouraged to do so by churches and leaders who lack the courage and who lack the boldness to stand upon God's clear and firm word. And as the church remains silent, crippled with fear, refusing to contradict the world's opinions and values as these opinions and values infiltrate the church, or even worse, as those leaders support and fan such women into disobedience, endangering their souls along with the myriads of people who follow them, as an example, when this becomes the norm, of course, it's no wonder then it feels like a cannon has been fired when the gunpowder that is a clear scriptural prophetic voice lights the wick, and propels the gunfire into the issue. The phrase, go home, may have caused a big stir, but this particular phrase is used actually used twice in the New Testament in reference to women. All MacArthur did was quote God's word. First, in reference to the interpretation of prophecies interpreting and weighing in on the meaning of God's word in the church. Listen, 1 Corinthians 14, 33-35. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. But they should be in submission. As the law says, if, anything they, if, they, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, this is specifically referring to the interpretation of and instruction of men in the Word of God. Women were to sit silently in the church as men taught and weighed the prophecies that were being given in the church. And any questions that women might have or wives might have, they were to ask them to their husbands at home. And now I know, I feel the desire probably rising up in many of us, but what about, but what about, but what about? And the degree to which this is rising up in you, the degree to which you are irritated by these words of Scripture, the degree to which they grate on you, the degree to which the words of our Lord through His Apostle bother you is an indication of how much sway the world has on your mind. And this idea of home is raised again. In his letter to Titus, Paul's letter to Titus, where we read these words. Listen to them. Titus chapter 2, verse 3 to 5. Older women are, to be, are likewise to be reverent in their behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Whew! Older women, did you hear what you're commanded to do? Did you hear what you're commanded to teach the young women? Older women, it is your duty to train up the young women in the church. To do what? To love their husbands, to love their children, to exhort them during that season of life when they have young children to work from home. Why? That the word of God may not be reviled. Now I want you to just contrast that. Think about how the older women in culture teach the younger women. Is it to love their husbands and to love their children? Is that what our older generation of women in culture teach our younger women? I think not. In fact, I hear more often than not older women telling younger women in culture, your husband's a fool, why would you listen to him? Or your real worth actually comes from getting out of the house and finding some sort of high-power, high-paying job and shipping your kids off to daycare. 
Not staying home and loving your husband and caring for your children. Let me just tell you, that's a lie. A lie that runs in direct contradiction to the Word of God. Women, to love your husband, to love your children, to work from home is a high and holy calling. It is one of the precious, most precious, and most important callings on the planet. It is the most meaningful calling that you could ever put your hand to. The most beautiful calling you could ever put your hand to. I've often heard some say the reason that God didn't allow women to be preachers is because he already gave them the most high calling of being mothers. You can't have it all, women. It is more blessed to be a, a wife who loves her husband, loves her children, and works at home than to be the prime minister of a nation or the CEO of a powerful company. Women, if you are loving your husband and working at home, amen, amen, you are doing a great thing. But as our modern Western culture reacts with utter horror to such words... And as professing Christians in professing churches across the continent work to free themselves from what they see as archaic rules from a bygone era that don't apply to us today, and as women are fanned by public figures into increasing violations, much of the church simply plays along, doesn't it? Simply sits back, refuses to rock the boat, refuses to speak out against those who, like the scribes and Pharisees, lead people, and not a small number of people, but throngs of people into rebellion and even apostasy. And so how did we get here? How and when did standing on the sure foundation of God's written word scare us so much? How did we get to this place where those who, when called to do so, speak like the prophets of old against the cultural drift, against the downgrade of the church, speak with clear biblical clarity? How did we get to the place where we are upset by such rather than thankful for such? How did we get to the place where we are more upset by and afraid of what we deem impolite tones than we are by the clear declaration of God's will in reference to those public figures who are happily speeding crowds in the direction of disobedience? How did we get to the place where we fear speaking in ways that convict wrongdoers of their wrongdoing? That we fear heralding the note of condemnation when that note is oh so desperately called for because our silence is allowing infiltration into the church and the confusion of the saints. I, for one, am so glad for Jesus. I'm so glad for his example. I'm so glad that him and his disciples and the few men with courage throughout the ages have spoken as clearly and convictionally as they have. Woe to you. Because in the end, the word MacArthur spoke, for example, again, the full quote is this, go home, there is no case that can be made biblically for a woman preacher, period, paragraph, end of discussion. When words like this were spoken to the sinner in 1 Corinthians 5, he returned repentant, amen. Because scripturally faithful words like these, to those who truly love the Lord, ought to be sweet. God's word ought to be sweet to us. The words of the Lord correcting us, rebuking us, training us up for in, in righteousness ought to be for us the sweetest words we hear. And they will only sound harsh to those who are in rebellion and who wish to maintain themselves in that rebellion. So now, if you're sitting here irritated, now you can begin to put yourself in the place of the Pharisees when Jesus launched into the series of seven woes directed against them in full hearing of the crowds. But I just want to say, the next time you hear what might sound like rough true, but true biblical words from a faithful servant of the Lord who speaks prophetically like the numbers of prophetic voices before him, remember that this is how the faithful men of God have spoken to those crowd, to those who lead crowds astray all throughout history. So we end where we began. There is a time and a place 
to publicly rebuke, chastise, condemn, and reprove those public figures who set themselves up as examples to the people of God, but lead people astray by their hypocritical, unrighteous, disobedient blueprint. There is a time for prophetic voices to speak up when masses of people are being led on the wide road that leads to eternal destruction, when highly influential public figures who profess to instruct, serve, teach, and speak for God lead untold numbers of souls single file into rebellion against God and the clear witness of His Word. And this duty is serious. May we not be like those who scorched the prophet rather than the one leading others into error. May we not remain silent, but may we speak convictionally, boldly, and clearly the truth of God to a world that desperately needs it and to a church that desperately needs it. Father, we praise you and thank you for the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you for the alarms that you give us in your word We thank you for the ways in which you have raised up men and raised up women throughout the history of the church to help lead and guide us into the ways of fruitfulness and obedience. And we ask that you would help us to be clear on these issues, to be courageous and convictional and bold. May we never succumb to the false teaching of public figures who lead people astray. And may we help rescue those in their grip. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.